We are going to begin a new series. Christmas is over, unfortunately. I like Christmas. My wife loves Christmas. I love turkey. We all know all that. But now it's a new year, and we had an excellent start to the new year with um, Arthur Dixon coming last week to share about the new things that Jesus has introduced, the new life, the new heavens, the new earth, the new wineskins, the new wine, all of those things that he mentioned last week. We talked a little bit about that in prayer meeting as well on Wednesday. But the new series that we're starting um, this month is called Images of the Church. And I've subtitled it, Who We Are, What We Do, and Where We're Going who we are, what we do, and where we're going. So over the next four weeks, we are going to spend some time looking at different images of the church that are used in the New Testament. Today, we're going to look at this idea of the body, um, the church is a body. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to look at the image of family. The church is a family. Two weeks from today, we're going to look at the topic of temple. The church is a temple fit for worship. The last one, on January 30th, I struggled with what to call it. Um, the texts that we'll be looking at are related to heavenly citizenship, that we are citizens of heaven. So the best I could come up with was the church is a heavenly kingdom. I was going to use country. Kingdom sounds more majestic, so I went with kingdom. Uh, but we're going to be zeroing in on, on the idea of heavenly citizenship from both Philippians and also from Ephesians. But today we want to talk about the church is a body. But before we do that, let's bow for a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you as I just mentioned, we pray, first of all, for Ina Callahan and her family, that you would encourage them at this time. We pray for this Saturday, as there is a memorial service for her son, Alistair, that uh, those that would come, those that might view online, those that uh, know about this would be praying for her and for her family at this, uh, in these difficult days. And we just look to you again for comfort and strength for her and be all that she needs in this difficult time. We pray now too as we look at your word and we, uh, this very, very, very important topic of the church is a body. Each one has a part, but together we are a whole and we need to be whole and united and together. So I pray today as we look at your word that you would open our hearts to hear your truth, that we would be receptive to your Holy Spirit's prompting in what he is saying to us and asking us and telling us to do. I pray too that you would cleanse my lips to speak only your truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the body metaphor that Paul uses shows up quite a bit in four books. In, in Paul's letters. Uh, those four books are Ephesians, Colossians, as well as Romans and 1 Corinthians. Um, 
We're going to look at one specific passage today in detail, and that is going to be 1 Corinthians uh, 12, starting at verse 12. But before we do that, I just wanted to give you a quick overview of, or a summary of all the different ways that Paul uses this phrase, or this word, the body of Christ, um, in, in these different places. Uh, just so we get... Uh, you know, sometimes when you look at one passage, you get truth, but you don't get the whole truth. There's only parts of it there. So I, we're, we are going to look at de- in detail at 1 Corinthians 12, but I do want to make sure that we realize there are other places that talk about this. So, first and foremost, um, Paul talks about the church body is directly connected to Christ as the head. Um, it's not, a, you know, a headless horseman kind of situation here. There, the church is a body, but the body is connected to Christ, who is the head of the body. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 10, Ephesians 1, and in Ephesians 5, where, where Paul talks about the, the husband and the wife and Christ and the church is his bride and uses all these analogies of the head and the body. The second thing that comes out when we look at these other verses is that the church body is made up of all kinds of people. It's made up of Jews. It's made up of Gentiles. It's made up of slaves. It's made up of free people. It's made up of males. It's made up of females. All of these different people are in Christ's body. That's in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 3. The third idea that comes out in several of these passages is that the idea of a body is used by Paul to emphasize that the church should be unified, that we are together. And that um, part of that was read today very well by Jing from Romans chapter 12 in verses 1 to 6. It's also mentioned in Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3. The last thing I want to mention, and this really isn't dealt with in 1 Corinthians 12, but is a very, very important part of this body metaphor idea, is just like a human body, the church as a body is designed to grow and mature, to develop, to get better, and to improve. And that comes, uh, or Paul talks about that a little bit in Ephesians 4, 12 to 16, and in Colossians 2, 19. So these are some of the ideas that are found in other passages, but we want to zero in on, on the longest passage that Paul uses to talk about this idea of the church as a body. And that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 12, and going all the way to verse 31. So it's, it's quite an extended treatment where Paul deals extensively with this idea of the church body. Now, in order to understand what Paul is trying to do here, we need to understand what's going on in the Corinthian church. And if you've read the book of Corinthians at all, you know that the Corinthian church is not the poster child for a healthy church. They have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of problems. 
many, many, many problems. And as you work your way through the book of 1 Corinthians, you begin to see all the different problems that they have. In the first four chapters, they've got problems of divisions. This one follows Paul. This one follows Apollos. This one says, I'm a follower of Christ. And they're all dividing up amongst each other. And Paul has to say to them, is Christ divided? What are you doing? What are you thinking about? You're all broken up into little groups. In chapters 5 through 7, they have problems all related to sex. You've got people marrying people they shouldn't. They've got people involved in idol worship that involves sexual rituals that they shouldn't be involved with in, in pagan temples in the city of Corinth. They've got people w having weird ideas about marriage and so on. And they've got big problems. Then in chapters 8 through 10, they've got big problems related to food. What am I supposed to do? This food was sacrificed to an idol. Should I eat it? Should I not eat it? Some said yes, some said no. But the big problem was that nobody cared what anybody else thought. It's just, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And I don't care what you think. And that's the way it is. And then in chapters 11 to 14, which is where our passage comes from, Paul has to talk to them about their church gatherings. People were coming to church and when there was food served, people would grab all the food they could get, and there was never enough for everybody else. They were getting drunk at communion time. They were doing all sorts of crazy things. And when we get to the end of the book, chapter 15, they've got some crazy ideas about the resurrection. The resurrection has already happened, and so what I do with my body doesn't matter anymore because the resurrection has already happened. And Paul has to tell them, no, the resurrection hasn't happened. All these things have to take place, and these are the ways that you'll recognize. You will have a glorified body. You only need to look at me right now. I do not have a glorified body. This is not, I hope this is not the end. And so all of these problems that Paul talks about all the way through the book come down to one key issue. And the one key issue, the one big problem that this church has is that the people in the church are selfish. I want things my way. My way or the highway. If you don't like it, there's the door. That is not what the church is supposed to be about. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, this idea of selfishness rears its ugly head again because in chapter 12, Paul has to talk to them about their chaotic and selfish church gatherings because they were coming together and there were people speaking in tongues and people were trying to interpret and other people were talking and they were interrupting each other and all of these things are going on. And many people in the Corinthian church had concluded that some of the gifts of the Holy Spirit were better, more important, more fancy, more interesting, more exciting. And so what they were doing was they had decided that tongues was the best. 
If you speak in tongues, you're cool, you're great, you're important, because tongues is exciting, tongues is mysterious, tongues are interesting. And so this became a a point of uh, elitism. I will look down on you because I'm speaking in tongues, you're not speaking in tongues, therefore I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. You don't matter. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul has to explain to them what the gifts are, what their purpose is, what what is God doing by giving gifts. And so he starts in 1 Corinthians 12 by saying that the Holy Spirit has given different spiritual gifts to each member. And those gifts are not just a gift to you. My wife gives me a gift at Christmas. I'm happy. That's for me. I use it for me. But the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are gifts that are given to build up the church. And they are given not according to what I want, but according to God's will. And so with that as a background, we want to look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 31, because now Paul, who has said the spiritual gifts are there to build up the church and are given according to God's will, now he's going to use this body metaphor, this body analogy, to finally explain what it is he means by all of this. So that with a concrete example we can understand what it means to have a gift from the Holy Spirit and to use it and how we use it and how all of this works together. So in 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 12 down to verse 31, what we really see is that Paul wants to say that the church is a diverse but unified body. The church is a diverse but unified body. And he does that by four points, four ideas. Number one, he talks about the theological basis or the foundation for this idea, and he explains that in verse 12 and verse 13. Then he's going to emphasize the one side of that coin. One of my favorite phrases that we used to get in China all the time, students would write papers, every coin has two sides. And that's, this, this is important, but that is important. And here, Paul is going to say every coin has two sides. The church is diverse, and he's going to talk about that in verses 14 to 20. But the church also must have unity, and that is verses 21 to 26. He finishes that metaphor in verse 26, and then beginning in verse 27 down to verse 31, he applies the metaphor directly to the church. So we're going to work our way through the text. We're going to see what Paul has to say. And then I have some very uncomfortable questions to ask you at the end of the sermon. All right? So let's begin. Starting at verse 12. We see the theological basis, the foundation for what Paul has to say here. And this is in verse 12 and verse 13. Let me read them for you. Verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, 
and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Not a lot to explain there. Um, the body has many parts to it, but together those parts make one body. But notice what he says at the end of verse 12. So it is with Christ. He doesn't say with Christ's body. He says with Christ. And so already you're beginning to see Paul's understanding of the deep connectedness that the church has with Jesus. The church body, as I mentioned earlier, is not some sort of headless horseman kind of idea where we're just concentrating on being together with each other. We are being together with each other because we are rooted and connected to Jesus. Another example of this way of thinking is when Paul first meets Jesus in Acts chapter 9. He is on the road to Damascus. He is going to try and arrest Christians and put them in jail. He thinks they're evil. He thinks they are wrong. And he is causing tremendous trouble in the church in the first century. And on that way to Damascus, he sees a vision of Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Not my church, not my people, not my body. Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is the Son of God, and we are his body. There is a deep connection between him and us. So there are many members of the body, but there's only one body, but that body is deeply connected to Jesus. How did that happen? How did we get this deep connection with Jesus? He tells us in verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. How do we become part of the body of Jesus? How do we get that deep connection with him? He died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, but the Holy Spirit is filling us, empowering us, is our seal of our eternal redemption, Ephesians says. So the Holy Spirit has come to baptize us, to submerge us, to cover us over so that we come into one body. When did this baptism of the Holy Spirit take place? Peter talks about it at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They're trying to figure out. All these people are there. They see all these people speaking in their own language and telling them about Jesus. How did all of these things happen? What does Peter do? He quotes from Joel chapter 2 when he talks about the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Poured out. 
We have been baptized into one body. Doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, doesn't matter whether you're a Greek, doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. And we were all made to drink of one spirit. What is that? A couple weeks ago, we saw Vincent in the baptismal tank. I, I hope he didn't drink any of the water in there. That's not what that metaphor is about. So what is this idea of drinking the Holy Spirit? Again, if you go back to the book of John, explicitly in John chapter 7, when Jesus is in the temple area, he talks in John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, he talks about the Holy Spirit being rivers of water that surround us and can be a drink for us, to sustain us. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, when we see the new heavens and the new earth, the rivers of life are there to sustain us. That is a symbol of the Holy Spirit who is there. In John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the lady, the Samaritan lady, and they're drinking water from the well, and Jesus says, I have a water to give you that will spring up inside of you to eternal life. And she says, give me that drink. I want that drink. I hate coming to this well all the time to get water over and over. I want some better water to drink, some eternal water. That water is the Holy Spirit. So this connection that we have as the body of Christ is deep and intimate and un, un, unconnectable. We are connected with Christ, and that has been accomplished for us by Christ's work on the cross and then the Holy Spirit enveloping us in Him and connecting us deeply to Jesus. That is the foundation for what He wants to say about the parts and then about the whole. And that's what we begin to see starting in verse 14 is... Let's talk a little bit about the parts, the diverse parts of Christ's body. And he talks about that in verses 14 to 20. So let's read um, those verses together. Starting in verse 14, Paul says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to figure out what Paul is saying here. He's using the body analogy to say, each member in the church is equally important. Every member in the church is equally important. The body does not consist of one member, but many. Every member is equal, and every member is a part. Even if we don't think so, it doesn't matter. If my hand just decided, I don't want to be part of David anymore. Other than being cut off, there's no way for it 
to not be a part of my body. It is. It's a part of my body. That's all there is to it. This is not some sort of Frankenstein story where we have legs over in this corner and we have arms over here and at some point we're going to sew them all together and make a body. That's not the way it works. The body is already connected. There are many members and each member has an equal part in the body. So, if there are all these different members, he goes on in verse uh, 17 to explain what the function, or, or that each one has its own unique function. He says this, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Every part of the body has a function. If you can imagine what Paul is saying here, if, if, if we could see this, if you saw an eye rolling around, just an eye rolling around on the street, that would be hideous. That's the stuff of horror movies. That's terrible. Or an ear. And if you're only an eye, how do you hear? If you're only an ear, how do you smell? If you're only a hand, how do you walk? If you're only a foot, how do you manipulate anything? Each member has a unique function. And I think what's most important that he says in verse 18 is this is God's design. This is God's plan. This is God's purpose. It is not by accident. It is not by luck. It is not by some sort of fluke. It is God's design. God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. You see how the church would be hearing this? They're all thinking, tongues are cool. Tongues are the best. We've got all these gifts. We've got all these members. Each member is equal. Each one has a unique function. Each one is exercising that gift according, or should be exercising that gift, according to God's design and plan. That's the diversity side of things. When it comes to the unity side of things, he moves on in verses 21 to 26 to begin to talk about unity. And again, this is a church that was having so many problems with selfishness, going their own way, exalting themselves over others, wanting their own ideas to be preeminent. And yet, Paul has to say, the body must be, well, actually, the body is unified. Here's what he says, starting at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Now let's, let's talk first of all about the analogy itself. What is Paul saying about the human body? Not about the church specifically, but about the human body. In a physical sense, the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Because the eye can't do hand stuff. And the, in the second part he says, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Heads aren't made for walking around. They can't do that. But then he goes on to talk about all this stuff about weaker parts and um, modesty and all of that. What's he saying? It, it really gets down to the fact that, you know, I'm standing here at the front and of me, what can you really see? You can see my head and you can see my hands. Everything else is covered up, right? If I came to the front today and started preaching this sermon and I were not wearing any clothes, number one, you'd call the police. Number two, you'd start throwing up. But it's not modest. It's not appropriate. We wear clothes because it's cold in Canada in the winter, but we also wear clothes because it's modest. And so Paul is drawing attention to that to say, there are parts of our body that do things that we need. And I don't want to go into greater detail, but the language that he uses here, he's really talking about things like when you go to the bathroom. Those parts are not on display. Those parts are not shown out to everyone. But if I can't go to the bathroom, frankly speaking, I'm in big trouble. I'm in really big trouble. It won't be very long before I die. Those are parts of my body that are covered for modesty's sake. And we do that even though no one else can see those things, but we take special care of those things because we need them. That's true in our body. And so now Paul is taking that idea and applying it to the church. And he's saying, first of all, number one, members in the church, we need each other. Everyone in this church is needed. Everyone in this church is a part of this church. Every member is needed. And weaker members, new Christians, Christians who are struggling, Christians who are having difficulties, weaker members are also necessary. Now sometimes decisions get made in churches based on different things, like well, we, we have to keep this person happy because they put a lot of money in the offering plate. They're more important. Or we have to keep David happy because he's the transitional pastor and he's at the front almost every Sunday. So we have to show him due respect and honor and we have to put him on a higher place. Please don't. 
and I know that you don't, and thank you for not. No. Every member of the church is necessary. Weak members of the church are necessary. Weak members of the church need extra support. Why? Because we need them. Because they are a part of us, and we need them. God has given the weaker parts more honor. It reminds us a little bit of what Paul has said all the way back at the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians. Who has God chosen from this world? Has he chosen the strong and the intelligent and the great? No, he has chosen the weak in order to confound the wise because God's weakness is shown to be strength, and that is the wisdom of God. God has included in this body of Christ, connected directly to Jesus, all different kinds of people, and the weak ones and the strong ones and the ones who are struggling and are having difficulty, they're all needed, they're all necessary, and they're all to be honored. He goes on to say, as we continue in verse 24, the second part of the verse, he says, but God has so composed the body. The verb that Paul uses there is the same verb that we use in English when we talk about uh, following a recipe. Now, I'm a terrible cook. I'm a horrible cook. Um, I don't like cooking. I'm not good at it. I'm terrified I'm going to wreck it. And thankfully, God in his graciousness gave me a wife who is a very good cook. Because when I try to cook stuff, I never know how much to put in. And my wife is such a good cook that she can't tell me how much she puts in. So if I'm making spaghetti and the, it says you need, you need to put in some salt, I'll say to her, how much salt? should I put in? And she'll say, some. And I'll say, I don't know how much some is. And she'll say, a little. Well, how much is a little? Is this a little? Is this a little? Is this a little? I don't know. But what Paul is saying here is, God is taking the church and he's mixing the members together to make a body that is going to function, that is going to, using the analogy of a recipe, that's going to taste good. Have you ever made something and forgot one ingredient in the recipe? And then you make it and you taste it and you think, ugh, what is wrong with this? What's, what happened to it? It tastes terrible. It's because something is missing. And Paul says, God has so composed, or God has so mixed the recipe of the body together, giving great honor to the part that lacked it, so that there may be no division in the body, but so that the members may have the same care 
for one another. I said at the beginning of the service, we love you. And I meant that. It wasn't just a setup for this verse. We love you. One of the things that I love about this church, that Pastor Nick, when we first uh, came to this church, was he said, the people in this church will love you. And he told the truth. You are a loving church. And Paul is saying, God has mixed together different gifts, different abilities, different perspectives into this church so that there would be no division in the body and so that the members would have the same care. This member and this member and this member and this member are all important. Everyone is important, and everyone is worthy of our care and support. He finishes this section, verse 26, by saying, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. All for one and one for all. About five or six years ago, I was, my wife and I were going on a trip. We were going to drive from Toronto to Philadelphia, and we like to leave super early in the morning because we want to avoid the traffic on the QEW, which gets crazy in the morning because we were heading to Philadelphia. So we wanted to go down to Buffalo and then travel on to Philadelphia. So four o'clock in the morning, I come out the front door, I'm holding two suitcases, and I take one step down the front steps of my parents' house, and I don't know if I tripped or there was something there, and I fell, and my ankle twisted, and a, a little tiny bone right here in my leg broke. I'm laying on the ground, four o'clock in the morning, it's dark out, nobody else is around. My wife is downstairs cleaning her teeth in the house, she doesn't know I'm laying there. Anyway, the long and the short of the story is, three months later, I was starting to recover. A little teeny tiny bone, about this big around in my leg, broke. One spot broke and my whole body suffered for three months and continued to suffer frankly it took me about two years before I could uh, walk properly and even think about running two years if one member suffers the whole body suffers together if one member is honored, all rejoice together. I would love to see that in our church. When one member has a victory, that it makes all of us happy. That when one member has trouble, when one member has struggles and difficulties, we all work together to help that person. That's what being a body means. Martin Luther, in reflecting on this specific passage, 
talking about the church's diversity, talking about the church's unity, uses a different analogy, but says exactly the same thing. I want to read it to you. It's not very long. It's just one paragraph. Here's what he says. The sun does not say that it is black. The tree does not say, I bear no apples, pears, or grapes. That is not humility. But if you have gifts, you should say, these gifts are from God. I did not confer them upon myself. One should not be puffed up on their account. If someone else does not have the gifts I have, then he has others. If I exalt my gifts and despise another's, that is pride. The sun does not vaunt himself, though more fair than the earth and the trees, but says, although tree, you do not shine, I will not despise you, for you are green, and I will help you to be green. I will help you to be green. So Paul uses this metaphor, uses this analogy to come back to the issue at hand. The church is fighting over spiritual gifts. And so now he applies this metaphor directly to them, starting at verse 27. Here's what he has to say. Now you, plural, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Again, he's emphasizing unity, diversity. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now, Which one does Paul put last? Which one is last in the list? Tongues. Now, I don't think it's any accident that Paul puts it last because they're saying it's first. It's most important. But he's saying, no, God has appointed in the church all these other gifts too. And then he goes on to say in verse 29, he asks a bunch of questions. Actually, goes on 29 and verse 30 as well. And each of the questions is structured in such a way that the obvious answer, the only possible answer in Greek is no. So verse 29, he says, are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. Not everybody is the same. Not everybody has the same job. God's recipe to make the body of Christ is to mix together all of these different gifts to build a unified body 
that will glorify him. So he ends chapter 12 with this important verse. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. What makes a gift higher? He's emphasizing, focus on using your gift that is most beneficial, most helpful for the church. Desire those gifts that build up, not puff up, build up. And then the last sentence he says is, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? Well, chapter 13 is all about one thing. That one thing is love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and I have not love, I am nothing. I am nothing. The more excellent way is love. Love is not a spiritual gift. Love is a way of life. And love becomes the foundation by which you exercise your gift, not for yourself, but for the building up of the body and the edification of the church. That is why you are given the gift. That is why you operate in love and not in selfishness, because that is how the body of Christ is matured and nurtured to grow, to be all that God wants it to be. Now comes the hard question part as we conclude. What is the application for us? I really don't think that we have a problem exalting speaking in tongues in this church. I'm quite certain that that's not a problem for us, that we're mad at each other because we think, oh, this one speaks in tongues and that one doesn't and blah, blah, blah. That's not the issue. So what can we glean from, from this passage that is directly applicable to Arendelle Bible Chapel in 2022? First of all, whatever church we are, wherever we are, whenever we are, the first thing that this passage teaches us is we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Arendelle Bible Chapel is not just a social club. Arendelle Bible Chapel is not just a charitable organization so that we can give money and claim it on our income tax at the end of the year. Christ is the head of the church. Without him, we are nothing. We are nothing without him. Paul has spent most of his time talking about diverse members and one body and all of that, but where did he start? He started with Jesus. Jesus is the head. We cannot forget who is the head. One of my favorite books 
about pastoral leadership is a book called Jesus is the Pastor of This Church. It took, it took me aback when I first saw the title of the book. Jesus is the pastor of this church. He is the head. He is in charge. Pastors and leaders and elders and all the members, we are the body. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the pastor of this church. Without Jesus, we are nothing. So what is that calling us to do? If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you should be intimately connected to a church. You should be, I'll say it directly, you should be intimately connected to this church. If you're not a member of this church, why not? Why aren't you a member? You come. You're watching online. Why are you not directly identifying your connection with this church. Jesus and God the Father have made a recipe. You are needed. You are involved. Become intimately connected. Show your intimate connection to this church and show your intimate connection with Jesus. What about the diversity side of things? What Paul has told us here is you, you, you personally have a gift that has been given by God to build up this church. You have been given a gift by God to build up this church. First question, do you know what your gift is? As I said before, Arendelle Bible Chapel is not a social club. It's a body. It's designed to function. Do you even know what your gift is? If you don't know what your gift is, I, Pastor Nick, the elders, Claudia, would be happy to sit down with you and talk with you and find out what it is that God has equipped you to do to help his church. The first step is, I know that God has given me something. God is not a liar. He says in this text, every member has a gift. Do you know what your gift is? If you don't, we need, that's the first step. We've got to figure it out. Once you know what your gift is, are you using your gift? Are you using your gift. I have the gift of teaching, so I will exercise it by sitting in the pew and listening to the sermon every week. And that's what I will do to exercise my gift of teaching. No. Now, what has Paul said? Are all, does everyone have the gift of teaching? No. But teachers should be teaching. Helpers should be helping. If you have the gift of administration, you should be administrating. Are you using the gift? Are you contributing to the recipe? Are you doing what you're in there for? And lastly on this one, I'll ask this question. If you are using your gift, how are you using your gift? 
are you using it to say, ooh, my gift is teaching, and so I'm going to all, use all these cool illustrations so that after the service, people will say to me, that was a great sermon, David. Thank you for that. You're such a great preacher. We like you. You're nice. I like you. And then I feel all happy. No. How are you using your gift? The gift is not to build myself up. The gift is to build up the church and to use my gift to help others. How did Martin Luther put it in his illustration? The sun says to the tree, you are green, and I will do my best to help you to be green. Every gift in the church is to build up, not to puff up. All right, lastly, this idea of unity. All of these passages on the body, not just 1 Corinthians 12, but all the ones that I looked at this week in preparation for this sermon. The one conclusion that jumped out to me over and over and over again is unity is not a goal for the church. It is a fact. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Our duty is not to become unified. Our duty is to maintain unity. Unity is there whether we like it or not. The issue becomes when we act like we're not unified, that's when the whole body suffers. We are unified. If I say to myself, this bone in my leg doesn't really matter, and so I'm not going to worry about it, and I hope someday it'll be okay, it's still part of my body. It's a fact, whether I like it or not. It's a fact. So unity is not a goal. Unity is a fact. And so we need to be laser-focused on keeping the church unified. Keeping the church unified. And if we're not keeping the church unified, we all suffer. We all suffer. When I was a little boy, there was a, a man in the church that I grew up in who didn't become a Christian until he was an adult, a, a mature adult in his 30s, maybe even in his 40s. His name was Jack Body, Mr. Body. And Mr. Body, when he was young, was, had lots of problems in his life. But the one thing that I will never forget about Mr. Body was he, he used to run the Christian Service Brigade program at the church where I was growing up. And he was, as I said here, laser focused on keeping the church unified. And so when, wherever he was, if it was at church or at Christian Service Brigade, which was on Monday nights or prayer meeting on Wednesday, whatever it was, if somebody said something negative about a person in the church, you know, that person, I don't like that person, they're a bit of a gossip, or I don't like the way that person does this, or I don't like this, or I don't like that, he, he would immediately say to them, now tell me something good about them. Now tell me something good about them. 
because he was laser focused on this idea that we all need each other. We're all part of this one body. We all have to work together. So if you're going to say something negative about that person, now tell me something good. Because we are in this together. We also need to break down false hierarchies in the church and focus on building each other up. I'm drawing this from that area about some parts seem to have more honor, but really all the parts are equal. We need to break down false hierarchies. Every person in the church is important. Every person in the church deserves care. Every person in the church needs to be built up. We need to break down false hierarchies. That's what the world does. The world honors and loves the lovable. The church should honor and love all. That's what makes us the church. That's what makes us different. So when we focus on unity, we all win. It's good for you to focus on others. That sounds weird, but it's true. When we focus on unity, we all win. And the best way to bring unity is following the more excellent way. What is the more excellent way? The way of love. I love my wife. She is not perfect. My wife loves me. I am definitely not perfect. But we love each other and we're willing to help and build each other up because we love each other. God has built his church, intimately connected us together into the body of Christ, connected to Jesus for nourishment and strength and growth, empowered by the Holy Spirit who has brought us in and given us eternal living water to be his people, to love each other so that the world will know that we are his disciples. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this image of the, the church as a body, as one who has been fit together by you according to your plan. I pray that each one of us would recognize our role, our individual role that you have given to each one of us, that we would be uh, faithful, that we would be diligent in fulfilling that role that you have given to us. But most of all, that we would be unified, that we would be united together to know, so that the world would know, so that each of us would know that we love you and we love each other. What did Jesus say? He said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills all of the law and the prophets. So I pray today for Arendelle Bible Chapel, I pray for each one of us, that we would be living examples of a body of Christ that loves Jesus and loves each other and loves the world. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.